Wow, I'm kind of pumped this morning for, this, uh, for where we're going with the message. Over the course of the last five weeks, I have had a growing and a building agitation in my spirit that has caused me to conclude, wonder and conclude, that actually God is up to something. I don't think he's ever stopped being up to something right throughout the, the course of history. But I actually think God is, is starting to stir and to provoke and to prepare lives for a greater level of activation than we've ever seen before. So um, I've, I've long held this view that when God decides, as is prophesied in the Bible, to pour out his spirit on the last days, <clears throat> there are going to be three groups of people. Those who catch what the Holy Spirit is doing and go, yes, Lord, I'm in. There are those who are going to wonder what happened. And then there are those who just won't even have a clue. I want to be in the first group. I don't don't want to be a surfer that sits there and goes, no, I don't want that wave. I'm going to wait for a better wave. I don't want to, and and the sun goes down and they go home and they haven't surfed a wave at all. Over the years, when I've taken funerals, I've really encouraged people who are celebrating, and more often than not, I'm able to celebrate the person that we are honoring and say this person lived life well, because there are those who get to the end of their life without having really ever lived at all. And I believe God is really starting to stir some things in the hearts of believers. And I actually also think he's starting to provoke non-believers to question and to wonder and to search. You know, God, the the Bible's very clear. God has a definite timeline. It's also very clear that he's the only one that knows that timeline. (laughs) However, the Bible is also clear that we can discern the times and the seasons. And I think God is not... He's, he's not all about us just sitting waiting at some heavenly bus stop waiting for bus number 777 to roll along, or he's not wanting us just to sit down and wait for his return. I believe he's actually got something for us to do. And last week, Suze's message was called Filled to Function. And if you missed it, I really encourage you to go, uh, go to on, onto our website or our iTunes podcasts um, account or even a church Facebook page and watch or listen to that message because it kind of almost laid a platform, well, it did lay a platform for this series, this next three-week series that I'm doing. Her message was filled to function, and so for the next three, three weeks, we're going to be digging deeper into the function part of that. We've spent five weeks, the previous five weeks, learning and digging into the Holy Spirit about being filled. But to echo Susan's question from last week, what now? I've smiled several times throughout the week when, she, when I've recounted the story she told of our cat who likes to eat and sleep and eat and sleep. And she used this phrase, I don't want to be a fat cat Christian. God's got a purpose for us. There's a calling, a purpose on each and every one of us. We know that by the word of God. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that. Jeremiah 29 11 tells us that. To live fulfilled is to discover and to walk in that purpose. So this series that I'm doing is called Base Camp. And we should have, there we go. If you don't recognize that mountain in that picture, it's Mount Everest. Mark Twain, uh, the famous author, 
is famous for many quotes, but one of them I find is absolutely profound and perfect for this message. It says this, the two most important days in your life are the day that you were born and the day you find out why. The day that you were born and the day you find out why. So before we go anywhere else, let's just pray and let's just set this as a, as a holy moment, an altar moment where we gather around the Word of God, the living Word of God this morning. Father, as we come now into this time of our service, Lord, we have worshipped you. We have welcomed you into your presence and you have welcomed us into yours. And now, Lord God, we gather around you, the living word. And so if I may be bold to use the Apostle Paul's words, Lord, I don't want to speak with fancy speech. But Lord, I'll deliver what you've put in my heart. I'm asking, Holy Spirit, that you would confirm it with power. Signs and wonders that point to you. Holy Spirit, you are welcome. You are the spirit of revelation and truth. You are the comforter. You are the guide. You are the convictor. You are our all-encompassing holder. Come and fill this place as I speak because I need you to do what I cannot do. I'll deliver, but you plant. I'll encourage, but you water. Lord, I'll stack the wood, but you bring the fire. In Jesus' name, amen. As, as we all know, this is, this is not some great revelation. Life is a journey, yeah? But actually, more often than not, life is not just a journey. It is a climb. And if, you, if we think of climbing for a moment, let's use Mount Everest as our, as our mountain, the tallest mountain in, in the world. The base camp on Mount Everest is where those planning to summit, or you know, summit as in get to the top of Mount Everest, they actually spend weeks acclimatizing and preparing and checking their gear and planning the route that they're going to take up the mountain. They, they study the weather patterns. They spend weeks in one camp before they climb in actual fact, there are six base camps on Mount Everest. And each stage uh, of each base camp, the, the, of each stage of the ascent, it needs greater levels of preparation, greater levels of acclimatization, and even more refined equipment. The uh, base camp one, which I'm calling this message base camp one out of three, there's, it's actually set at 5,364 meters above sea level. That's for, for those of you who are imperial in measurement, that's 17,500 feet. In comparison to our own Mount Tapiaunuku, the top, the peak of Tapi, Mount Tapi, is 2,885 meters or 9,465 feet. So base camp one on Everest is almost twice the height of Mount Tapi. Here's a stunning statistic about base camp one. Only 65% of the people who set out to ascend Mount Everest ever make it to Base Camp 1. It is an 8 to 12 day hike. And it, like I said, it's almost twice the height of Mount Tapi. And as soon as you get over 2,000 meters, you are in thin air zone. And so your walking is slower. Your walking is more determined and more you have to watch where you feet because you have to breathe so much more to get the right amount of oxygen so everything works and I have experienced that because I have climbed Mount Tappy and uh, the team I was with we got about probably about 60 vertical meters from the summit and then the weather closed us out so we never actually made the top of it but there are many people around who have in actual fact I've seen the photo of you Dan why on the summit of Mount Tappy 
Well done. Congratulations. I'm jealous. <laughs> what was that? Oh, thanks. Twice. Okay, don't rub it in. <laughs> you, are no, you are my new guide when I go next time. <laughs> then you can Skype three times. But here's the other thing about Basecamp, and this absolutely blew me away when I read it, and I thought, that'll preach, so I'm going to use it. <laughs> the massively important thing about Basecamp 1 on Mount Everest is this. It is the furthest you can go only using your legs. Any further than base camp one, you start to need specialized equipment, ropes, ice axes, crampons, even oxygen tanks. It's the furthest you can go only using your legs. Why is that profound for a believer today? The Old Testament is full of imagery, and I just, I absolutely love it. Because I'll tell you what, you can only go so far in God just using your legs. You can make it to base camp, absolutely. But God has so much more for you than just base camp. So I'm going to give you now five foundational scriptures that I am going to use throughout this three-part series. Here we go, very quickly. The first one, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. It should be familiar. We've used it every week for the last six weeks. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Next scripture, John 13, verse 35, out of the message translation. So this is how we recognize that you are my disciples, when they see the love you have for each other. The next one. Mark chapter 12, verse 30 and 31. And you must love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your, all your soul and all your mind, uh, sorry, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. Did you know that in the New Testament, it says that you should love your neighbor as yourself or words to that effect 17 times? It's a clue. Romans chapter 12, next one, Romans chapter 12, verses 4 and 5 and verse 9 and 10. Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts of one body and we all belong to each other. Jump to verse 9. Don't just pretend to love each other, love others, really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good, love each other with genuine affection and take delight in honoring each other. Then jump down to the fifth foundational scripture for this series, Zechariah chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. So he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What are you, mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become level ground. Then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of, God bless it, God bless it. Or in another translation, it says, with shouts of, grace, grace, grace powerful word. So let's begin our climb to base camp one. If we take those five verses and we consider the context of them and run them in reverse, but link them all together, this is what it would look like. Zerubbabel was a Babylonian Jew, which meant that he was a Jew who was born in Babylon when they were living in exile. 
And he was one of the people, one of the group that came back to Jerusalem when they were released. And he became, became the governor of Judea under Persian rule. That's when it says, that's why the name Zerubbabel is in there. Now, these exiles coming back from Babylon to Jerusalem, to their homeland that God gave their ancestors, they had a mountain of brokenness, shame, and destitution in front of them as they returned to their homeland. They had to deal with that mountain before they were even able to work as one body. Why was that? Because you know what? They had no idea how to love their neighbor, and they couldn't love their neighbor because they didn't know what it was to love themselves. And yet, and yet, even though their history was known by all of their neighbors and their witness would have been weak at best and ridiculed at worst, God himself prophesied over them that the Holy Spirit would come upon them and they would receive power and they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and beyond. So we've got a group of people who are broken, busted, dusted, rusted and disgusted coming home absolutely Mount Everest in front of them with the knowledge that God had declared over them through the scriptures that they were going to be his witnesses to the rest of the world. You know what? I'd find it hard just to get out of bed in the morning. The truth is that for any of us, we will only be able when the Holy Spirit enables us. Let's consider those exiles coming back to Jerusalem, their history, everything that went before and everything that went with that created this massive mountain that they had to climb. And if there was a name that we could give that mountain, I would give it this name, chaos. So I want to give you three pieces of climbing equipment that you are going to need to climb the mountain of chaos. You ready for this? All right, here we go. The first one shouldn't be difficult for all of us. God's Word. Just recently, I had an encounter with God in His Word in one of my quiet times. I was sitting in bed, holding my coffee, reading the Bible. And, and this is big. I got so excited, I put my coffee down. Okay, so those of you who know me, this is huge. Yeah, I know, I know. There's head shakes of disbelief in the auditorium. I'm sure there are online as well. Okay, I use the Vision Bible app to read my Bible. And, and a lot of the times when you're reading through the scriptures, there's a little gray box with three dots in it. And if you tap on that, it opens up another window and it either gives you cross-references or a deeper meaning of what's being said and things like that. So what I want to do is I want to give you Three scriptures in a row that I linked, 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 linked to. That was four, but three as I was reading that caused me to put my coffee down because I'll tell you what, what I discovered in this totally baked my noodle. And I just knew I had to share it with you. Okay, here are the three scriptures. James chapter 2, verses 25 and 26 out of the New Living Translation. Rahab the prostitute is another example. She was shown to be right with God by her actions when she hid those messengers and sent them safely away by a different road. Just as the body is dead without breath, 
so also faith is dead without good works. Now, you'll see the little red, red numbers up on the screen. No, no, don't go back. Don't go, go, no, no. Don't give it away so quickly. It's frozen. Let it go. Let it, oh. <laughs> okay, the next scripture, Joshua chapter 6, verse 25. So Joshua spared Rahab, the prostitute, and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies. Joshua sent to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. The next one, Psalms 89, verse 10, you crushed the great sea monster. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Now, in those three Bible verses, my brain was completely exploded when I dug deeper into it. You'll notice that in there, there's a one, two, three, and a four. I'm coming back to that. But number four, I want to look at that first. You crushed the great sea monster. There's a little star there in ancient Hebrew literature. Okay, you can move forward now, one, Elliot. Thank you. In ancient Hebrew scripture, the name of the mystical sea monster that represents chaos is Rahab. So why did this blow my mind? As I sat there, with like, I was like, <laughs> just this is, and the four, the four numbers that I put in those scriptures, here's, here's what I believe the Holy Spirit showed me in that moment. Number one, Rahab was accounted in the lineage in the story of faith. When there is chaos, it does not necessarily mean that you are out of alignment with God. Number two, Rahab hid the spies. Chaos can actually hide the purposes of God. Number three, Rahab lives amongst, lived amongst the Israelites. Guess what? Chaos is alive and well today. And if you are going to climb the mountain called chaos, then number four, God crushed the sea monster. God himself is the only one who has the absolute power and authority over chaos. It is not by might nor by power, but by my, says the Lord. And the very next part of that, that those verses that I read was, who are you, mighty mountain, to stand before Zerubbabel? Guys, we must have the word of God in our climbing gear. We must, because he speaks directly through his word into our situation. Just think about that. You think, how can my faith be real? There is chaos all around me. Guess what? Chaos was in the faith lineage of Jesus. Rahab was its name. You think, I'm surrounded. I am literally hidden from the world by chaos. No one can see into my world. No one has, no one has any idea of the chaos that's crushing me down. That doesn't mean that you are out of God's will. Chaos can hide the purposes of God. And often chaos can be used by God to what? Cause us to dig into his word. Cause us to get on our knees and pray. Cause us to lift our hands and praise him until we have no breath left. We pray, God, God take chaos away. Guess what? Chaos is alive and well today. But the really, really good news is that when Jesus returns, God will crush the sea monster. God will deal with chaos once and for all. How do we know that? By the word of God. You have got to have the word in your climbing gear. 
Otherwise, you are hamstrung from the get-go. What's our second piece of climbing gear? We've looked at God's word. Now we're going to look at our words. I've heard this quote many times. If you think you can't, you're right. You know what? Your words... I want you to understand something about the Word of God. It says we have been created in the image of God and we have been filled with the breath of God. What did God use to create things? He used His breath. What are you speaking over your lives? What are you speaking over the lives of your children? What are you speaking over the lives of your husband or your wife or your work colleagues or your boss? Now that may sound a little in your face, This is exactly what God challenged me on because I had a boss that I thought he was the chairman of Atheists International. And he was a hard, 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 hard man. But then I learned a little bit of his backstory. I learned a little bit of what caused him in his life to be the hard man that he was. And God challenged me to pray for him. And so I began to change the words that I used about him and prayed God's word over him. Matthew chapter 4 verse 1 says this, And then Jesus led the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. This always has really messed with my head, that verse. Jesus has just been baptized. He comes out of the river. The heavens are torn apart. A dove descends, and the voice of God echoes throughout the cosmos. This is my Son, in whom is my beloved. I was like, come on, that's the peal of thunder I want to hear every day. And then the Holy Spirit himself leads Jesus into the desert. It's like, what's with that? The wilderness, the wilderness time lasted 40 days. Temptation was real and is real. Chaos is alive and well today. You know, it's when we're in the wilderness, or if you've ever climbed a mountain, when you are on the side of a mountain, You are exposed to everything. You are exposed to every element that comes your way, whether it's sun, wind, rain, snow, lightning. When I climbed Mount Mount Taffy, like I said, the weather closed in on us and we were like zero visibility. It was 10 tenths cloud all the way down to the rocks and we were coming down that mountain hoping and praying that we would see the next trail marker just appear out of the cloud. Uh, And that that was... that was pretty tough. We were cold and we were wet. But you know what was amazing? We'd be coming down through the cloud and we, heard, we, we would literally hear like that. And, and you just go like this. Because that was leading up to a lightning strike and thunder. So we were coming down through the cloud and we would hear. And I was like, this is awesome. <laughs> Terrifying. But this is so cool. <laughs> Okay, I know I'm a little unusual. But I tell you what, we were exposed to everything that was going to be thrown at us on that bare rock. And sometimes when you're on the mountain, that's what it feels like. It seems like the Holy Spirit has left you. That there's no, you know, in the Bible, when Jesus is in the wilderness, there's no reference to the Holy Spirit being there. We don't see a dove, we don't see a fire, we don't hear about wind or oil. We just see Jesus getting tempted and getting hungry. What was the first tool he used in his climbing kit? The Word of God. On the mountain, we can feel like we've missed God, that he's left us, but it's not true. He's with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. 
So what do we need to do? We need to change our words. We need to stop complaining. We need to start asking two questions. What is the lesson here for me? What was the lesson I learned on Tappy? You saw the weather coming. Don't try and make it to the top. Get off the mountain. But it came in so fast it caught us. What was the next one? What have you come to teach me? (laughs) Take better wet weather gear. (laughs) What is the lesson here for me? What What have you come to teach me? That's what you ask of those situations. We need to cultivate our sensitivity to the Holy Spirit's leading you know, the Israel were in the wilderness after they were rescued from Egypt. And in contrast to Jesus' 40 days, the Israelites were 40 years. Now, I don't believe God intended them for that to be in that dry place for such, for, for such a long time at all. The difference between Jesus and the children of Israel was the words that they used in their wilderness or on their mountain. Have a think about, have a think about this. Jesus quoted God's word. The Israelites Israelites quoted their feelings. Jesus confessed God's words. The Israelites complained. Jesus trusted what God had said about him. Israel doubted what God had said about them. Their words extended their time. They were literally at the river to cross into the promised land, and their own words disqualified an entire generation and sent them on a 40-year journey around the desert. They had God's word, so God's word was in their climbing gear, but they nullified God's word by their own words. Our reaction and our time of spiritual dryness determines the length of our climb and what we see. We'll either see ice and rock on the side of the mountain, or we will take and take in and be caught by the breathtaking views of God's work. One of the practices I have tried to build into my life is to see God's handiwork wherever I go. Oh, you know what? I've been really good at seeing God's fingerprints after the fact. <laughs> 2020 hindsight is perfect and long distance but I'm trying to train my spirit to see his fingerprints on the journey, on the climb. God, where's the next handhold? Look for God's handprint. Where's the next path? Look for God's footprint. If the Holy Spirit leads you to a mountain climb, trust God's word to get through it and let God's words shape your words. In the climb, the Holy Spirit hides in the Holy Scriptures. That's why Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth. Earthly bread represents what we see, what we feel, our personal appetites. But actually, we cannot mistake that and make this time difficult and longer by giving into our feelings. Instead, we need to feed ourselves on supernatural living bread, the word of God, and use that God's word to shape our words. Here's climbing gear number three, prayer. Romans chapter 8, verse 26, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that cannot be expressed in words. The Holy Spirit is, he's on our team. Emmanuel, God with us. He is our intercessor. One of the greatest miracles of grace is the coming of the Holy Spirit, the Father God sending the Holy Spirit. The Apostle Paul tells us that the Holy Spirit who lives inside us, if if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you are a born-again Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. And according to the word, 
He intercedes for us with groanings that are too deep for human words. Romans 8, 26. Even when we don't know how to pray, the Spirit prays the perfect will of God. No matter what kind of climb you're facing, the Spirit travails for us until we emerge safely through the climb, through the test. We may not, we may not, you know what, let's just get real. We may not even be able to muster a strong prayer of faith. Our prayer may simply be, help me, God. Or, Lord, I don't know if I can hang on much longer. I'm, 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 both axes in the ice, ice waterfall, my toe cramp, my crampons are dug in, my rope is tight, and I don't know if I've got the strength to hang on, God. Anybody felt like they'd been there before? We have the Holy Spirit to help us in our climb, the climb of Mount Chaos. He prays with groanings too deep for words until faith gives birth to answers. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 5 and 7 says this, Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose and has given us the Spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. Therefore, we are always confident we live by faith, not by sight. If you're a believer, if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, you have received the Spirit of God as a deposit of what is to come. That's what the Scriptures tell us. That is God's Word. So our words can stand on God's word and say, I have got the Holy Spirit. I have got the comforter. I have got the guide. I'm not too sure if I'm doing this right. Holy Spirit, is this right? He is the convictor. No, it's not right. Okay, show me where to go. He will give us perseverance and the power to start and finish the climb. You know, I want to give you guys permission this morning. I want to give you permission on how to pray. And it's coming up on the screen right now. Oh, the power of God. There we go. Pray prayers that give earthly license for heavenly interference to accomplish the unimaginable and the unprecedented. Them big prayers, bold prayers, life-changing prayers. Many times we are tempted to only pray, pray prayers that have some sort of precedent in history of already being answered. Well, I know that one was answered, so I can pray for that one. I know my mum used to frantically pray for a car park when she went into town, so I can pray for a car park. Why don't you just pray for the entire floor on the car parking building to be empty so you get to choose? It could happen. Maybe at one o'clock in the morning, but it could happen. <laughs> when we ask God for the same miracle that has already happened in life to another person, we limit God. And you limit yourself. You know what? God waits to propel. I like this. God waits to propel our situations into groundbreaking, history-making miracles. If we have faith to ask for what? For that which is infinitely above and beyond our human reach. You have permission. Ephesians 3.20. He is well able to do more then we can hope or dare to even imagine that we think we might have permission to ask for. That's the TV, the Tom version. <laughs> okay, there are two types of people in the world. Those who make a mountain out of a molehill. Worship team, would you please come? And those who challenge the biggest mountains in their lives with a roar of praise and worship. What are you going to be? It might sound like an out-of-tune yodel when you start, but anyway, you're in the mountains, so yodel with all your heart. 
People will think you're from Switzerland, but that's okay. (laughs) What will you do? Will you make a mountain out of a molehill? Or will you face your mountain and give it a shout of grace, grace, grace? And stand with the Zerubbabel by the Holy Spirit, power of God, using his word and your words through the prayer of faith and take on that mountain of chaos. Because guess what? God kills the sea monster. As you came in, um, I I hope each of you have collected a, a communion emblem. These are our COVID specials. Everything's sealed in one packet. If you've never used one of these before, then the top, there's two tear tabs. The, very, the, the, the translucent purple one is the tear tab for the bread wafer. The next one is for the juice. I suggest that if you're going to put your thumb in the middle of it and pull it and open it, that you do so away from you and squirt grape juice on your neighbor, not yourself. <laughs> but the reason that I programmed communion to be right at the end this morning Sonia has, if there anyone who hasn't got one, just put your hand up. Sonia's got them and she'll come around. I want to give you a little bit of homework this morning. I've given you permission to pray unprecedented prayers for unimaginable, well, actually, let your imagination stretch and believe what you pray for. That's scriptural too. But I I want to give you a little bit of homework. In your quiet time, why don't you grab a journal Or like me, I use my iPad and type some notes. Write out your three top doubts that you have in your life on one side of the page. And then underneath it or on the other side, what I would like you to do is I'd like you to study the Word of God and I want you to write out a counter statement, a belief statement that has a promise from God in it. Perhaps your biggest, biggest doubt right now, your biggest fear is I'm all alone. Well, you know what? By the word of God, a counter statement, a belief statement that that is, God says, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. Earthly, you may feel alone or you may feel lonely, but God will never leave you. Your biggest doubt might be, God, I don't know how I'm going to pay that bill. The counter belief statement out of the word of God is that he is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord who is my provider. Your doubt statement might be, God, I don't believe I have any reason for being here. I have no purpose. By the word of God, the counter belief statement is that, is Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. You are the workmanship of God in Christ Jesus. You're a masterpiece, a one of a kind, handcrafted, never to be repeated masterpiece. Where God has made you, prepared you, and he's prepared a good work for you. He's gone ahead and prepared the work for you for you to walk in it. Again, TV Tom version. That's the expanded version of Ephesians 2 verse 10. Whatever it is, those those doubt statements that rule your life, write them out and then write a word of God counter statement that has the truth of God and let God's word shape your words so that when you pray, your words match God's words and you can believe for the unprecedented hand of God to move in your life and see that mountain leveled in Jesus' name. That's your first piece of homework. The second one is this. As you write those things down, 
also write this, a commitment to God. Let's not procrastinate on this anymore. Let's not deny God and be disobedient to what His promises say over us. Why are we doing this with communion right now? I want you to picture Jesus on His knees in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows He is about to be arrested, to be beaten beyond recognition, and hung on a cross in even today what is still described as the most excruciating painful death that man has ever invented he kneels before his father in heaven and he literally said God I don't know if I can do this and then he takes his words and he overlays them with the word of God and he realizes as his father said I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. He recognizes and he hears himself going, I'll only do what the Father has does. I'll only say what the Father has said. And then he realizes that actually his own father gave up everything when he sent his son to earth, knowing that his son was going to die. So he changes his words from, oh God, I don't know if I can do this, recognizing that his father kind of already has, And then his words become this, not my will, but yours be done. And then in your own space and in your own place, why don't you think about what God is speaking into your heart right now? I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. You have a purpose my son, you have a purpose, my daughter. I made you for a reason. I've watched you being made. I know every single intimate detail about you. Yes, you've made some mistakes, but guess what? They are not so big that we can't work together. I have seen my Holy Spirit who will comfort you, who will counsel you, who will convict you, who will direct you, who will hold you as you climb chaos. If you will do it with my spirit, we can do this together. 